So 2002, uh, Steven Spielberg released a movie called Minority Report. Does anybody remember seeing that? I can't really recommend it, but um, Tom Cruise stars in it. And uh, the story is fascinating. It's uh, actually based on a book from the 50s. And the storyline takes place in, I believe, 2054 around D.C. And there's this specialized sort of sci-fi police department. And they're able to apprehend criminals before they actually commit the crimes. They're able to sort of see into the future. And uh, the so-called pre-crime unit that can detect crimes before they happen. And, of course, Tom Cruise plays the director of this unit until he's accused of murdering someone who he hasn't even met yet. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine a world where crime could be predicted and avoided before it happens? You may not realize this, and this is sort of creepy to talk about, but there are people that are actually imagining a world like this and working towards a world like this. There's actually one example. There's a university in Shanghai that has uh, created some software that looks at your facial muscles and how they move, and they claim they up to 85% accuracy can tell if somebody's committed a crime. Kind of creepy. Think about that going on, you know, cameras and all that. But stop for a moment, and, and would it be a good thing for us to be able to recognize evil before it acts. I mean, if a school shooter could be stopped before anything happened, wouldn't we want that? To be able to clearly see good and evil before it's upon us? It's a fascinating question. By the way, that's apparently the question that was being wrestled with in the garden at the beginning of time. But here's the thing. In the movies, usually good and evil are obvious. They're really easy to spot. But isn't it true in real life we get duped all the time? Maybe it isn't a crime committed, but it's somebody who you trusted, who presented themselves to be a certain person, and turns out there's something different. Often that realization is painful, right, when we're mistreated or taken advantage of. There's this real reality that I want us to just kind of face into this morning, that we just aren't very good at recognizing good from bad sometimes. In fact, oftentimes. And yet we live as though we sort of have this minority report ability to see it for what it is all the time. We, we know what good is, right? little evidence that you don't know what good is. Some of you this morning, I overheard you, you actually think cats are good. You have misunderstood evil altogether. Um, you're awake, that's good. So, but, but you think about it, you know, geopolitical battles, wars, trade conflicts, political stuff, we always assume we're the good guys, right? I mean, we're never the bad guys, we're the good guys. It's the other side who's the enemy. And yet, if you're a student of history, it's just the painful truth that we haven't always been on the path of righteousness, even when we've claimed to be. Good and evil for us usually, in fact, aren't very easy to differentiate. And, and yet we're told things about the world from a young age, right? Like good will prevail over evil. I mean, have you seen very many movies or read very many books where the bad guy wins? Like that's always the story is good wins, right? There's this idea of goodness. Um, some of us were told along these lines of the world being fair that if you worked hard enough for something, you could do that, right? Anybody grew up with kind of that idea? If you just work hard enough, you can do what you want. Well, I wanted to be a fighter pilot may not know that. I grew up going to air shows and, 
every time an F-14 or 16 or whatever flew overhead, I could feel in my bones that was what I was going to do. Whereas my friends who were cooler than me had posters of Michael Jordan, I had an F-16 on my wall. That was me growing up. And I thought as long as I worked hard and, and you know, stayed on that path, I'd be able to do that. But nobody ever told me my eyesight was a problem. And I remember figuring that out in middle school, and it seemed so unfair. It seemed not at all good. And frankly, that was sort of when I lost my drive to work hard on a lot of things. But when I look back, obviously from this vantage point, as it sometimes, but not always is, it's easy to look back and be thankful that what I wanted and what I thought was good didn't work out after all. God had something else. We can't always see that, though, even looking back. But there's this reality that our notion of good doesn't always work out. And by the way, that experience is absolutely silly, knowing some of the experiences many of you have had and the difficulties, and the trials, and the hardships, and the loss that so many in this room have walked through. And even the things we've walked through, I, I think of certainly every day, today's no different, there are tragedies throughout the world, hideous things taking place that are hard for us to even imagine. And then we have these moments, I think of 2004, it was the day after Christmas. It was a massive earthquake. The Burma and Indian plates ruptured and 100-foot tall waves went shooting across the ocean, hitting Sumatra. Half an hour later, they traveled 500 miles and hit Thailand. After that, they went to India and no one knew it was coming. I don't know if you remember, 230,000 people were lost just like that. How do we see anything, let alone God, is good? in a world such as ours? It's an honest question. In fact, this idea of fairness or goodness or the problem of evil is, is really the obstacle for a lot of people having faith in God. Like We see this disparity between God is good and yet we see things in the world that are not. Well, if we go back to the creation account, we find a concept that if we're honest might actually be a little more challenging than we've considered. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, if we pick up in verse 9, we start to see this repeated phrase. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but it says, God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear, and it was so. It goes on to say, I didn't include verse 10 apparently, that he also gathered the waters he called the seas. By the way, those are the same seas that, Killed 230,000 people. But as he created it, he said this was good. You go down to verse 12, and the plants and the trees are bearing fruit, and God says it is good. Verse 18, the stars are giving their light, and God says it's good. A few verses later, the earth is teeming with animals. God says it is good. And then humanity is created. And just before resting on the sixth day, God says, it is very good. So how do we line all that good up with our experience of the world? You know, for example, there's this other repeated idea throughout the Psalms. One example is in Psalm 100. At the end it says, For the Lord is good and His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues 
through all generations. The idea is that God is always good. So how do we at the same time believe in this when we're surrounded by examples of evil and suffering? Now, what I'm not going to give you this morning is any cliche platitudes. We throw those around far too often. You know, sometimes things just don't seem to have a silver lining. And it just isn't helpful when someone you love is diagnosed with a terminal illness or you lose someone you care about or something unjust happens at work. It just isn't helpful when someone betrays you and someone comes up and just says, well, don't worry, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. That isn't always exactly helpful. So in crisis and in pain in the face of what we see as evil, the tendency to raise objections to God, or at least the notion of goodness. You know, the question, how could you allow this God? Many of us have probably asked that at some point. It's interesting, C.S. Lewis was quick to point out that, that those objections to God in these cases, they're grounded in a sense of fairness and justice. You know, the, the, the objection is that God isn't fair, God isn't just. In fact, regardless of your your beliefs of the world, whether you're someone you consider being a person of faith or not, pretty universally we believe people shouldn't suffer. People shouldn't face hunger or pain. It shouldn't be. And that's the kind of evil we all sense. And, and, and this dominates our daily life far more than we know, this, this assumption. When you go to the grocery store and somebody cuts in front of you, why do you get upset about it? Because that's not fair. It wasn't their turn, right? It's because we believe certain things about the world. Something's not as it should be, and we see it. The thing is, if we work from a purely scientific view of the world, and by the way, I embrace science. I'm in no way against it. Um, natural selection is dependent upon death and destruction and violence, and loss. If we think that's all there is to the world, it actually makes perfect sense. And yet, we sense there's something off, don't we? We recognize injustice and evil and know it just shouldn't be. So on on what basis can we look at the world that way? I mean, if it's just survival of the fittest, then actually it should be. But we know it isn't. And that very assumption, that, that basis for outrage, we may not realize it, but it assumes there's an outside greater force at work. You can't have good and evil without that sort of standard. And in fact, the very argument using that against the existence of God based on suffering and evil, Lewis points out, actually requires the existence of good and evil, which in turn would require God to exist. It's an interesting problem. But that philosophical debate still doesn't really help us when we're in pain, does it? It's not really about philosophy. How do we align the goodness of God with the pain we see in the world? How do we experience good? Um, I did something very unusual this morning and did fill in the blanks on your bulletin. Those of you who know me know that never happens. I'm trying to make this straightforward because I think there's some helpful things here. Uh, The first is this, just this realization. I'll put it on the screen. 
We don't always know good so good. We give ourselves a lot more credit than we should in our ability to recognize good and evil. You know, for example, if I have a friend who's down on his luck, man, that just seems unfair, but I may see somebody who's been addicted to drugs forever and just go, man, clean your act up and have no idea of what their two backstories were, what kind of pain they've walked through, what kind of trauma they've experienced, but I assume I know things. Our sense of fairness inevitably boils down to comparison. Usually we don't say it's not fair because I have more than the other person, right? And I should give it away. Usually it goes the other way around. It's this construct that we create. And and we're very bad at it. A few months ago I shared this reality with us that there's all sorts of research that basically nobody believes they're rich. If you go to people who make under $50,000 a year and ask them what is rich, they'll usually say somewhere around one or $200,000 is a typical answer. You ask the people who make one or $200,000 what is rich, they don't believe they're rich. It's the people who make a million dollars and so on and so forth. You can go way up the line and you find that people still don't believe they're rich. Why? Because they're comparing themselves to someone who has more than they do. The reality is we don't want fair. Just speaking of economics, I guarantee you, you don't want fair. Because if what we had was equally distributed around the world, we'd have a whole lot less. I'm not sure we want that. We don't know good so good as we think we do. And you know, sometimes in our minds, God doesn't measure up to things that God never promised. This life wasn't promised to be easy. Actually, Jesus promised just the opposite. I hate to say this, and this isn't at you, this is me. I think it's all of us that we live with a sense of entitlement that we deserve better, that we deserve more. And it shouldn't surprise us because we've been told that message since birth. That's what drives consumerism. It seems like the earth should be good, and yet sin, as we read in the Scriptures, has damaged everything. On the other hand, well, well, sometimes when bad things happen, well, they had it coming, right? We think we know fairness and goodness. And the thing we don't want to face into so often is that, in fact, we're a major part of the problem, aren't we? Because we actually don't want what's fair. We want what's ours. And that's our definition of good so often. We we don't always want to do good, but we certainly want it done to us, don't we? See, the good news this morning, in part, is that the gospel is in no way about what's fair. In fact, the gospel flies in the face of fairness because it's a story of God loving people who do nothing to deserve that love, forgiving people who in no way even want that forgiveness yet. And that's tough because when you really get down to it, the gospel doesn't necessarily correlate with our concept of good and bad and fair. Because God's generous and gracious. But secondly, besides recognizing we don't know good so good, um, it's helpful to realize God's intentions and our shortcomings. You know, many of us, we talked about this on Christmas Eve, many of us know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever shall believe in him, I get versions screwed up here, shall not perish but have eternal life, right? 
3.17 is really important because it says that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Why is that important? It's because we often work out of this belief that God punishes us for, for doing bad and rewards us for doing good, and God has to do those things. Uh, one of the passages that actually you'll look at if you're reading the book this week um, in your small groups is John 9, which is striking because these disciples who have been following Jesus for some time at this point have a wrong view of God. They walk up to a man who's born blind, and their first question is, whose fault is it? Did he sin or did his parents sin? Underline is this assumption that bad things only happen because people deserve them or do bad things. And, and in turn, when we do good things, we deserve good. Sort of a superstitious view of a God that we can control by our actions. In turn, Jesus in, in Matthew 5, for example, says things like, God gives light to the good and the wicked. God sends rain to both the righteous and the unrighteous. Friends, that doesn't seem fair. God is good to those who don't deserve it. That's a challenging reality, but I would suggest to us that is a very good thing, even though it's out of line oftentimes with our thoughts of fairness and good. Further, regarding God's intentions, there's a point in the New Testament where some believers are getting a little restless and they're saying, come on, God promised these things. When is he going to hurry up and do them? The response is God is not slow as you understand slowness, but he's patient with you. What's his intention? He wants all to come to repentance. He wants everyone to be restored. That's God's intention. And yet we are always so clear on that. I want to consider this, the reality that God, in a sense, chose to enter in our suffering. You may be familiar with Psalm 23, it's often read at funerals and things like that. And because of this line, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, how's it go? I'll fear no evil. Why? Because God's with me, right? The story that we just celebrated at Christmas, the nativity, Emmanuel, God with us, doesn't enter into a kingly situation, but rather enters into the suffering of the world and hardship. Think about the fact that the gospel stories tell us that Jesus lives as a refugee running for his life with his parents. That his life is upended from an early age. It's rather surprising. We read on and we find that Jesus suffers immensely to save the people. And in that, this is what I want us to understand, is that Jesus isn't depicted as some untouchable superhero-like character who's immune from all that's going on as he goes to the cross. It's quite the opposite. If you notice, this is Mark 14. How is Jesus responding? This is as he's about to be arrested. It says, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said, sit to his, said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Jesus is distressed, troubled, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's the account Mark gives us. 
He ends up praying three times, and each time the disciples are sort of sleeping. And this is the prayer. It says, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I want, but what you will. Three times. Jesus is betrayed by his own. He's arrested. He's mocked. Beaten. It's pretty ugly. It's horrible. He's abandoned by his disciples. He suffers this slow and horrendous death, nailed to a cross, slowly and excruciatingly suffocating to death. And if that isn't enough, this perfect one who's done no wrong experiences the unthinkable, crying out towards the end, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't just experience physical pain, but he experiences that separation. And Jesus Christ, God takes our suffering. Doesn't run from it. Isn't aloof to it. But in a sense, joins us in it. Shows the depths of his love for us. And identifying with our experience when we're abandoned and forsaken. So while we aren't left this morning with a simple, clear answer as to why suffering is allowed by a good God, we do see pretty clearly some things that aren't the answer. It isn't that God doesn't love us. It isn't that God is indifferent. God joins us in our suffering. Takes it seriously. It isn't that resurrection is just this consolation prize because life is hard. In fact, the gospel tells us that God is about the restoration of all things. And one of the most miraculous realities of the gospel is that we're invited to participate with God in that process of restoring. And so here's the reality. Often we won't see God's goodness if we aren't looking for it. Have you seen God's goodness this week? Have you been looking for it? You know, I'm, I find it remarkable. And in fact, there's some of you who have these type of stories that I see people who face incredible pain I cannot understand. And yet you have an ability to consistently see God as good through it. You've learned to see it. You've learned to look for it. You know, sometimes we know that pain leads to goodness. We know the story of Joseph, for example, shows us God is not a helicopter parent, allows us to go through hardship. And sometimes, like the story of Joseph, by the end we get to look back and see, oh, this was all necessary to come to this place of saving others. Sometimes we get to see that in this life. I think sometimes we could see it if we were looking for it. Jesus in John 16 says, In this world you will have trouble. Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. There's this promise of hope. There's something beyond what we see. And so there's this discipline of just looking for God's goodness. Looking around and recognizing it. Anyone see the sunrise this morning? You could see the sunrise this morning. Like, come on. It's good, right? It's there all the time if we notice it. 
Jesus, by the way, told us to cast our cares upon him. He says things like ask, seek, knock. There is this sense that we don't pretend pain isn't real. We don't hide our burdens or fake it. But we come to God and seek his goodness in the midst of them. So I want to suggest to us this morning a couple things. In fact, these are going to be practices that our small groups will be doing as well. To help us in a practice of looking for and recognizing and being aware of God's goodness. The first is this. It's going to drive some of us crazy. It's to be still. Our small group Wednesday night opened with five minutes of silence. It was fascinating how hard that was for some of us. Psalms say numerous times, be still and know that I am God. So often I think we're too hurried to recognize God's goodness, to listen to what God is speaking. So the first thing I would suggest this week and something we're going to be practicing in our small groups is just choosing to be quiet and present in your daily schedule. You can show up five minutes early to a meeting and be present. You can turn the radio off in your car. There's lots of things you can do to be quiet and to be present and to look for and listen for God's goodness and God's voice. Be still and know that I am God. So I want to encourage you to find five minutes every day to be silent. Now, for those of you who are like me and sitting still is virtually impossible, um, maybe go outside, walk around, look around. In fact, that's the second half of this is not just to be silent and to be present, but to also look intently for beauty. Because beauty is one of the reminders of God's goodness. God didn't have to make this world so incredible, so beautiful. Could have all looked like Portland. <laughs> but it doesn't, right? So I, I want to challenge us that it is a spiritual discipline to just go outside, look at creation, and just take in the beauty. I had the opportunity this week to be up in the mountains in the snow. And the quiet and the stillness is, is just remarkable. It's all around us, folks. We live in a beautiful place. Pay attention to the sights, the sounds, the colors. Maybe go to a park. Maybe go to a place that isn't really touched by humans up in the woods. And just go and see everything beautiful you can. Maybe make a list. Maybe ask, what's God communicating through creation to me? through his beauty. What do I see about God's goodness? So, so spend some time quiet and spend some time recognizing God's beauty. And then third, I want to encourage you, especially those of you who are walking through pain right now. Psalm 23. It's challenging to read through it specifically looking at what are all the examples of God's goodness I see in this psalm. Because there's a bunch of them might be helpful for you, especially as life is not seeming to be good or easy right now, to spend some time just 
sitting in that psalm this week and considering the character of God that's described, the goodness, the presence, even when there's evil. The reality is, um, for those of us who maybe don't know if we have faith, maybe our faith is shaky this morning, it is so helpful to just recognize the goodness that's around us. You probably won't find it on the news, by the way. We get so much of the bad and the negative that sometimes we lose our ability to see the good. The good of one another. The good in the people around us. The good in God's creation and God's provision. You know, the good that I had just enough to pay the bills this month. That doesn't always feel like a good thing, right? The good that we have breath in our lungs this morning. That most of us have bodies that at least sort of work, right? There's so much good and so much to be grateful for. And I find that when we tune our eyes and our ears to those things, the goodness of God becomes much more obvious and real to us. There is difficulty in this world. There are horrible things that I have no explanation for. But friends, I know God is good. I've experienced it. Many of you have as well. And the reality is that if when we come to those difficult moments, we want to have the capacity to still see God as good, we have to practice that in the good moments, in the easy moments. Because going back to those those of you who I know there's a few of you in this room, but those folks who can seem to go through the most insane, painful difficulty and still see the goodness of God, that didn't happen by accident. That came out of discipline, of a practice, of when life wasn't so difficult, still practicing seeing the goodness of God. So I want to challenge you to be still or quiet, to look for God's beauty, and maybe to sit in Psalm 23. And if this morning you don't know where you stand with Jesus, with God, I would challenge you to ask God to reveal his goodness to you this week and then to look for it. Let's pray. Father, we come with you with our, to you with our pain, with our sorrows, with our wants and our desires and the things we wish that were. And we want to be able to proclaim in the midst of those things that you are good. And we don't want to carry those. We'd rather cast them on you this morning. I would ask this week that you would reveal to us in a fresh way your goodness and your love. That you would give us the capacity to recognize it and to respond to it. To give you honor. To seek after you. And God, would you develop in us a greater gratitude that we could more fully resemble Jesus. We ask your spirit to be at work in this way. Amen.